This episode is brought to you by newspapers.com, offering 20% off a publisher extra subscription. Just use the code Family Tree Magazine altogether at checkout. That's code Family Tree Magazine for 20% off publisher extra. Welcome to the October 2023 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we are going to dig into one of the most commonly used records in genealogy, the census. However, Robin Smith is here to tell us about how it might just mislead us. Then in our Family History Home segment, Family Tree University instructor Gina Philibert Ortega will be here with some delicious ideas for creating a family history cookbook. Then we'll wrap things up over at the editor's desk with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook, to hear what we can look forward to in the next issue of the magazine. There's always a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. First up is the genealogy news in Tree Talk. All right, well, we love starting off each episode with some Tree Talk, and here to help us out with that is Rachel Christian from Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. So I know you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world of genealogy, and I know you track a lot of the the incoming news. What is new this month? Yes. Well, today I wanted to talk about the recent happenings over at Ancestry. Uh, So first off, as many of our listeners might know, Ancestry DNA has released a new subscription plan called Ancestry DNA Plus. Uh, Right now it's $29.99 for six months, and The big news here is that popular tools like SideView and Traits are becoming premium features. Um, The ability to view your matches full trees is also becoming a premium feature. If you have an Ancestry subscription that grants you access to records, nothing will change for you. This will only affect those who have taken an Ancestry DNA test, but who don't have a current Ancestry subscription. So that was big news in the community. And obviously, losing access to these features has made some folks upset, understandably. Uh, However, I have seen genetic genealogists like Diane Southard and Leah Larkin speculate that this change could indicate that new features are on the way, um, specifically side view being expanded to the grandparent level. So that's a positive view of things. And of course, only time will tell. But I know that was a major development for all of our Ancestry DNA testers and researchers. Thank you for letting us know about that, because that that does change it for some folks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And lastly, on a a very different note, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Ancestry has announced a new platform called Know Your Pet DNA, along with its first DNA test kit just for dogs, (laughs) according to the (laughs) press release. The test features include a breed breakdown, which you might compare to, um, you know, the ethnicity estimates. Uh, It includes traits, and it even includes matches, which, quote, close genetic, which uncovers, quote, close genetic matches to other dogs, end quote, in the database. So uh, it is a proper ancestry DNA test for dogs. Well, I would imagine as many matches as we get for humans in our family, holy smokes, I imagine there's going to be an awful lot of dog matches, don't you? I, yes. And, and when, 
when they need us to help them triangulate their matches, we'll be here. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> Rachel, do you have a dog? Are you getting your dog tested? Uh, you know, I don't have a dog. My mom does. Uh, we tested him and he is the greatest mutt I've ever seen. But I'm intrigued that he might have some genetic relatives out there. So who knows? He might. We might have to swab his cheek. Oh, that's funny. That's awesome. All right. Well, we knew you would get us up to speed. Thank you so much, Rachel. We'll talk to you next month. Thank you, Lisa. The U.S. federal census is one of those kind of backbone records that we rely on as genealogists. But like all records, it's not without its own particular problems. So here to tell us more about how the census can sometimes be misleading is Robin Smith. She's a genealogist and the author of a new article on the census that appears in the September-October issue of the magazine. It's called Between the Lines. Welcome back to the show, Robin. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. This is a great article because it's just something that everybody can benefit from. We all tap into the census as we do our research. I'd love to have you start us off um, by just kind of explaining uh, what's great about the census. What does it offer us as a genealogist? Well, the most obvious answer is that all of the different kinds of of census records, not just population, but the non-population records, contain such a rich variety of details about our ancestors' lives. So that's the biggest import. You know, as genealogists, we're focused on relationships, and we typically turn to census records first. So they serve as the front door. They serve as the foundation for what is going to typically be quite a long genealogical journey. Um, We are so fortunate to live in an age where they are accessible online, might I say. I'm old enough to have remembered going down to the archives to look at the microfilm before there was an Ancestry.com. So um, they they just, they they ground our research. And uh, that's why it's even more important to understand why we have to approach these records with some caution, even though we're excited about what they say. Exactly. Well, and we love them because they are grouping these families together. Not only are we getting names and ages and relationships, we're, gosh, we're seeing them in the context of how they all kind of connect together. But as you mentioned in the article, there are some ways that the census can kind of fool us. We, we see information and we think, oh, yay, okay, that's it. But we need to look between <laughs> the lines, right? What's one of the, the first ways that it might fool us? I always say to people that there are three categories of census information that deserve special scrutiny. I, I say age. That's usually most obvious, right? People see that there's not a clean 10 years of aging between uh, between census records, names, and relationships. But the four ways that I highlight in the article that have happened numerous times in my own research is, first, that we see relatives recorded as boarders, roomers, or lodgers. So I tell people, when you see that, give those individuals Uh, closer scrutiny, look at the fan club, really research their lives, because sometimes 
someone who's who's marked as a border rumor or lodger is going to end up being a relative. We also, because there was such a social stigma, more of a social stigma in the past about it, we see a lot of divorcees who are recorded as widows. So we need to do that additional work and make sure we're searching through court records uh, to find divorces and not just assuming that the other person died because the census says so. The third way the census can fool us is assuming that the wife is the mother of all the children, right? If we're not paying attention to those census columns that tell us how many children the women birthed and how many are living, and we're not looking at marriage records, I can tell you, Lisa, I've got relatives who married twice and their second wife had the exact same given name as their first wife. So it's very easy for that to happen. And the fourth way is the inconsistent use of nicknames, first names, middle names, and initials in the census. This personally drives me a little crazy. <laughs> you know, and you going, who is that? You know, so you know, our ancestors can appear in these in these sources uh, with different names. So we have to be conscious that we're 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 keeping identity in mind, of proving identity and not just matching names. Absolutely. My paternal grandfather was, I always knew him as JB, but he was Robert, Robert mm. JB Moore. And, and then oftentimes his friends called him Bob. So we had all kinds of guys who sound like, you know, they all have Bob and Robert, and, but it's all the same man. And, you know, some of these ones that you're talking about, whether it's um, somebody re- being recorded as a boarder or the issues around recorded as a widow versus a divorcee, you're really touching on something so keen. I'd love to have you just talk about it a little bit more. It's the social history. It's understanding the time frame that your ancestors living because that would really open your eyes to question some of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, Lisa, when I first started researching, I was actually shocked about how many people got divorced. Uh, you know, there's this kind of myth that floats around. Oh, you know, uh, people didn't get divorced as much as uh, they do today. And while that on its face may be true, they certainly got divorced a lot more than I thought. And I'm talking about in the 1800s, you know, mid 1800s, early 1900s, but it shows us how human are. They're just like us. There's nothing that we're experiencing that our ancestors didn't experience, right? Mm -hmm. So all of the ups and downs of life, the chaos, you know, all the flaws that we have today, they had then. And divorce records can be really illuminating, you know, very sad in many cases, but people are deserted, people are abused. I mean, you know, all the things that exist today. And so, um, you know, I had an ancestor, my great grandmother, when I was very early in the 1900 census, she said she was widowed. That's what I thought for many years until I turned my attention to the uh, court records. And I found that her husband had actually left her for another woman. Um, that other woman subsequently divorced him. And it was a very, very chaotic divorce. Um, so while my ancestor you know, went on to marry someone else and hopefully to have happier days, she was not, in fact, a widow in 1900. So... Something to think about. Yeah. And I've seen people listed as widows where the husband is still very much alive and they actually never did formally get divorced mm-hmm. or they, they said they were divorced so they could get married, but they actually, there are no records. <laughs> so I mean, there's so many different combinations and people were just trying to, to get through it all. 
Mm-hmm. Something else you mentioned in the article, and you've got a nice little kind of breakout page on it, is about the enumeration instructions for the enumerator. So th- these directions, in a sense, for the enumerator really tell them how to fill out these census. How can we lean on this to then understand the information we're seeing on the page? So in 1850, the Census Bureau started to, to publish instructions for the census enumerators. In those earlier censuses, the few instructions they got were just embedded in the, the, the act, the actual law that had been passed. Um, so you start to see over the decades more and more instructions. As your listeners know, uh, later censuses start to ask more and more detailed questions, variety questions. And so I always recommend to people to refer to these enumerator instructions. They're easily available online and they're very illuminating. Now, you know, obviously sometimes we can't tell if the enumerator followed those directions or not, right? When we just look at the names and the ages, we don't know what was told. Uh, But two of the things that stick out to me is understanding that starting in 1830, they were required to make multiple copies So you can imagine all the errors that might happen in the copies that they were required to make. And again, when you look at those uh, instructions, um, I can remember being struck by the difference between someone who was keeping house and a housekeeper, that those were two different things. (laughs) You know, so even something as small as that, um, the census enumerators can really help us. Now, sometimes the enumerator didn't follow the instructions and it helps us, right? (laughs) I I have instances where instead of just putting the birth state, the enumerator added the birth county of the the person. And that was helpful. And even for, you know, the slave schedules that were created in 1850 and 1860, there were some enumerators who mistakenly wrote the individual's names down, even though they weren't supposed to. So, of oh, course, wow. those of us who are lucky enough to live in those locales, we're very fortunate to have that. So those are some of the ways that referring to the enumerator instructions can really affect our research, our analysis of what we're looking at. Well, I know this article is going to affect the analysis of many of the people listening because it's chock full of these ideas. We've got the direct link in the um reading directions section so they can go download those enumerator instructions. And it's just a wonderful way to just kind of double check that everything that we have gleaned from our census records has been verified and is accurate. Yes. yes. Again, the article is called Between the Lines, and it's by Robin Smith. And you've been listening to Robin. She is a wonderful contributor here at Family Tree Magazine. And this article is going to appear in the September-October 2023 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's always great to talk to you, Robin. Where can folks find you online? Oh, thank you, Lisa. I'm at reclaimingkin.com, a website that I've hosted for over 10 years. Uh, It's a teaching website. So every post is designed to teach about a research strategy or about a a resource. Um, And so I welcome your listeners to come take a look. And they can reach out to me, my email. They can contact me also through that site. All right. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon, Robin. Thanks, Lisa.
Today's episode is sponsored by Newspapers.com. It's the largest online newspaper archive. Newspapers.com makes it easy to find your family's story with more than a half a billion digitized newspaper pages from the 1690s to today. Search for obituaries, marriage announcements, birth announcements, photos, and more in papers from across the United States, the UK, Canada, and beyond, stretching back three centuries. For listeners of this podcast, newspapers.com is offering 20% off a Publisher Extra subscription. Just use the code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE. Altogether, no spaces at checkout. That's code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE for 20% off Publisher Extra. Gathering around the table is a hallmark of family, and the food found on that table can tell you a lot about your family history. So here to help us save and share family recipes is Gina Philibert Ortega. She's the instructor of Family Tree University's course on how to make a family history cookbook, which sounds like an amazing project. And that course is available this month in October of 2023. Welcome back to the show, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I love this topic. I think everybody can certainly benefit from it. Um, And I know that you really specialize in researching our female ancestors. How can a cookbook project like the one that you help your students create help us learn more about these women in our family tree? You know, I think one thing that uh, probably needs to be clarified is even though the course is called Make a Family Recipe Cookbook, it's more than that. We start off by talking about how do you learn about your family food history and where can you find family food history. So I think that this does two things. One is we help you maybe even find recipes that your family had and and that your grandmothers and great grandmothers cherished. But we also learn about people by, you know, studying them historically, by using material culture, which is something we talk about in this course as well. And so we document our female ancestors, not just with names and dates and places, but also what they did and what they experienced. Absolutely. And I think that's some of the richest part of the family history work that we do, don't you think? I think so. And, you know, the thing is, is with this course, I love this course. It's, I, I mean, I teach, you know, a few courses and I really love this course because It really comes from a place like you mentioned that I love researching female ancestors and I like to look at what about our female ancestors that we ignore. And I think food history is something we ignore and it's so vital to us learning more about them. Yes, because they were picking the recipes that resonated with them, that they loved, might have reminded them of their childhood. So gosh, there's a lot to glean there. Um, So you know, we get excited about, okay, well, how do we go about picking which recipes we might be working with and and actually finding some? Very true, because not all of us um, have those recipes that were passed down. That's why in the beginning of the course, we talk about food history and we talk about different types of cookbooks, including community cookbooks. And you know, we we discuss what is your family eating depending on time and place. So if you weren't that lucky to inherit that stuff, 
what you can do is you can look at food history to get some ideas about what your family was eating. So, for example, let's let's consider World War II. Everybody in the United States was under food rationing. And so that meant they were limited in what they could purchase. And so we, t- you know, y- you can consider some of that, for example, when you think about your family. And obviously, you can also do oral interviews and other ways to find your family's food history. Yeah, and you mentioned community cookbooks. Uh, I know churches were big, and they still are, on getting all the people who attend the church to to contribute a particular recipe. And I have found recipes that my husband remembered as a child. I went on eBay and started searching around and trying to find some cookbooks. And I actually found some that had recipes, not just by his ancestors, but by their neighbors. And of course, who were they sharing their recipes with? Their neighbors. I loved it. Exactly. And think about, you know, the the beauty of a community cookbook, even if you don't find the name of your ancestor, but it's for the school their children went to, or the organization they were part of, or the church they belong to, you know, those are recipes that people could cook in that area, that they had access to certain foods. It does tell you a lot. Uh, The other thing is, is sometimes they have histories And, you know, let's be real. When you find your family and they've submitted a recipe, they're not going to submit the recipe that everybody hates, right? They're going (laughs) to submit their best and what they like. Um, So, I mean, there is the thing about people not wanting to give up all their secrets, but they, you know, this is something they're proud of. And so it's something that we can then take and we can, you know, try ourselves. And we might learn something from the recipe as well, because sometimes recipes, besides telling us what foods they had access to, or what what kind of diets they uh, partook of, it also tells us a little bit maybe about their background, ethnic background, religious background. So we can do some analysis as well. Very much so. I remember seeing my grandmother's sauerkraut recipes. So, <laughs> and they were very German. Yes. So that, yeah, I love it. So I, I know that uh, I, I, in my case, I'm really fortunate. I have a lot of very old recipe cards um, from both sides of the family, my husband's side of the family, books that I've inherited. I, a lot of them fallen apart at the binding, as well as I found old newspaper clippings kind of tucked into some of those books. So do you have a couple of tips from your course? I know you help people preserve these things. What can you share with us? Well, so that gets into the material culture I mentioned before. So material culture is basically stuff. And uh, as you mentioned, there's recipe cards, there's cookbooks, there's Uh, newspaper articles, there might be magazines, and then there's the kitchen tools that we have. What I recommend is that you scan, right? Scan what you have, especially paper items, because those over time do deteriorate. The other thing that I would do, and I show this in the course, there are different ways that you can take that newspaper clipping or that recipe card and preserve it by putting it into a specialized uh, kind of like sheet protector for those items. And that can help as well. You know, one of the worst places, and this is going to sound ironic, but one of the worst places for those paper items, those recipes, is the kitchen. Because think about the kitchen. It, It can get hot. 
it can get messy. It can, you know, there can be water, there can be spills, there can be all kinds of stuff. So the other thing that I would say is once you have scanned and put your uh, recipes in something to preserve them, get them out of the kitchen. If you want to use it for cooking, then, you know, take a picture of it with your phone or, you know, print it out on your computer or whatever, but get that stuff out of the kitchen because really the kitchen is not a place to preserve items. You sound like you've been in my kitchen. <laughs> it's messy. And I I've been in my kitchen. Yes, yes. Well, I just know, you know, I mean, most of us have families, right? And right yeah. now, if you came over to my house, my kitchen's a mess because everybody's doing stuff in there. So you don't want your recipes in there. That is such a smart point. Okay. Now, I can I see in the course, I've been looking at the outline over at FamilyTreeUniversity.com, and you even take it further. Like you said, you expand beyond the cookbook. What other kinds of fun can we have in the kitchen? Well, this is a good time to think about this, right? Because we're heading into the holidays. And one of my big kicks this year has been making sure that I'm sharing what I have with other family or making it available. So how can you take those recipes and that knowledge and make it available to people? Obviously, you can scan it and then upload it to places like Family Search or to a cloud sharing site. You can make things with it. There are different companies online where you can take a recipe card and make a kitchen towel, for example, or a cutting board. And that's a great gift for uh, the holidays. We talk a little bit about scrapbooks. Uh, if that's your thing, you can do that. So, you know, whether it's just uploading it, making it available, making, you know, the cookbook that we're going to talk about, a scrapbook, or you know, trying to be a little more creative. In fact, there's one company that you upload images and they'll make fabric. So you can make yardage and then you can take that fabric and make pillows or kitchen towels or tablecloths. So there's quite a few different things you can do. Well, it's a good thing my youngest daughter doesn't listen to this show because I am doing just that. I'm, I had a bunch of recipes put onto fabric and I'm making not just an nice. apron for her, but I'm making a little apron for her one-year-old daughter. And I'm just so excited. Oh, oh, yeah. I need to see this. I want to see it when yes. you're done. That is fabulous. Well, we're going to post that online. Okay, so you, know, you can tell folks just by listening to Gina, she can look at something and just see so much more and help help you see so much more and do so much more with what you have. Her course is called Make a Family Recipe Cookbook. It's in October of 2023 at Family Tree University. And if you're listening to this later and it's not October of 2023, go check out the Family Tree University website because oftentimes this is run on a regular basis so you can join in on this fun. Gina, always so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for really illuminating the lives of our female ancestors. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. Well, as we wrap up this episode, of course, we want to check in at the editor's desk. And Andrew Cook, the editor of Family Tree Magazine, is here. And he's got a great preview for us for the November-December issue. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Lisa. Gosh, you've been working on so much. Tell folks what they can look forward to. Yeah, our November-December issue is um, 
Prime would be a really good one. The cover story is on how to print your family tree from your favorite software or online tree program, because we know that's a, a common question that genealogists have. Our um, home office printers can only do so much, right? Sort of limited by that eight and a half by 11 size. So we're um, hopeful this will be helpful to our readers coming up on the holiday season if they want to print a family tree for their own research or to give to somebody or to display at a family reunion or in your home. Um, and the, the feature has example designs from a lot of the popular programs, as well as some tree printing services that do this professionally. This is a good time of year to, to get on that. And I know so many of us, even though we do genealogy all the time, we haven't actually taken that step and got things printed. This is great. Do you have tips for them on how to do that effectively? Yeah, yeah. For the piece, we interviewed a couple professionals. And um, one of the pieces of advice that they gave that really stood out to me was to review your work before printing, which seems kind of obvious, but um, they said, you wouldn't believe the number of typos that we see <laughs> coming through. And, you know, once it's printed, it's kind of too late, you know, there it is in ink. Um, and I, uh, you know, from my time as an editor, as an experience, my experience as an editor, um, some editing tips that I found helpful are to have someone else read through, you know, with a fresh set of eyes, or to put the tree down and return to it later. Um, so your own eyes are fresh and you can sort of, it'll make it easier for you to, to see things that might be amiss. Um, and another, another tip that I've learned as an editor is to read things in reverse. So um, when you're editing a manuscript, you would go from the last line and move your way backward, just sort of a different way of reading. So maybe with your family tree, you read it from right to left instead of left to right. Wow, that is a great tip. And particularly even just all the names that are listed there and everything. I mean, that's that's awesome. Well, you should know. <laughs> um, I, I know you've got lots of other articles in the hopper for this issue. What else can we look forward to? Yeah, some highlights. Writing stories from family journals, getting involved in genealogy societies, the tools that MyHeritage has been publishing that help you enhance and colorize your photos. And then we have a great eight-page pullout cheat sheet on Scandinavian genealogy. And since it's our last issue of the year, we also have a special tear and save index that um, has listings for all of the articles that we published throughout 2023, which makes it a, a great resource for our longtime readers. Um, we have a the whole collection, every uh, in indexes for every year that we published all the way back to 2000. Wow, that's, that is such a huge help. You, you know, it's funny, you get your issue and some articles, you look at it and you think, I don't know if I really need that right now. But then a year later, you, you might, I know I've done that so many times. And the index is huge to help us find it quickly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been working in our archive recently. And, you know, over time, website URLs change and the offerings of the different online services change. But I'm so surprised by how much of the content, so how much of the advice in the magazine holds up over so many years. So, um, you know, it, it can be great to dig into that archive and people can download those full, um, the full gamut of article indexes on our website for free.
Well, you know, really good genealogy methodology and principles. I don't know that they change so much. So that's always good. You can always learn from those. Well, this is great. We've been talking about the November, December 2023 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Um, it's always available electronically, but gosh, you got to get your hands on a print copy because there's just nothing like it. And you got this wonderful um, tear and save index for 2023. We will have a link in the show notes to help you get your hands on those. Always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad that you joined me for this episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. As always, I'll have links on the show notes webpage for you to everything that we talked about today. You can find the show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And if you're listening to the show through a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcast, will you do us a big favor and leave us a five-star review on the show? Your reviews really do help others find the show, and we really appreciate that. Thanks again for joining me. I am Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll find the Genealogy Gems podcast and a link over to the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time... Have fun climbing your family tree.